welcome to Jeffrey R. DeRigo's Bunch of Stuff, an occasional podcast about writing, science fiction, and the stories that Jeff himself has published. Think about the first time you were put in a leadership position and you weren't really ready for it, or you knew that you weren't really ready for it. What was that like? So that's the sort of thinking that went into how I wrote the character of Taizen Kiro, or TK, in the Team Shikaragaki story, The Sojourn of Taizen Kiro. I have a couple of visual models that I used uh, as I was building this story, at least thematic visual models, that helped me flesh out what I wanted this story to do. One of them was, I don't know if any of you listeners remember, that there used to be a series of Bad News Bears movies in the 70s. So there's like the Bad News Bears with Walter Matthau and the team of kids. And then there was the Bad News Bears in Breaking Training. Like, they played, they played at the Astrodome, which I think has been destroyed since. But there's a scene in the Bad News Bears in Breaking Training where the team has taken off without the old man who's taken over his coaching duties for Buttermaker, who doesn't appear in any of the sequels, with Jackie Earl Haley driving the van that the kids have stolen. And a police officer pulls up alongside... And sort of looks over at him, and he's got on a pair of mirrored sunglasses and I think a cowboy hat, and he just sort of looks over and smiles at the cop with his arm out the window and keeps driving, and for that minute he looks old enough to be behind the wheel of this van, where I think his character is meant to be 13 years old. And off they go on their adventure. Well, that image always sort of stuck with me. Not because of the mirrored sunglasses or the hat or anything, but that idea that a kid a kid as young as Jackie Earl Haley was, could pass himself off as an adult, could take a leadership position like that and get them to whatever the next stop on their journey was. So that's that's one of the things that came across as I was building this story. And I also wanted to have a segment of TK's personality be rebellious. And rebellious for reasons that the other characters obviously wouldn't know, but in her backstory that she was setting herself up to be famous. And she had almost made it. Almost. And then in her, you know, her past history, her mother, her mother uh, had turned her in to the union because she was afraid of her career being eclipsed by the abilities that her daughter appeared to have. I thought that was a really powerful backstory for her to, to take into this tale, coupled with her failure as her original character called Spoonbender, who appears in uh, Sending the Clowns, where she's the fill-in telepath that freaks out and panics. Anyway, she's a fun character to write and read. And setting up a couple of crossover pieces for this, uh, the appearance of El Supremo at the, the, the circus, naming the circus, and then TK bristling against the authority and coming to understand the role of leadership that Miss Jennifer has are really important parts of this story that carry the rest of the Team Shikaragaki narrative forward. TK's always been a fun character to write, even though I haven't done much with her before this story. She was always a sort of slightly more powerful peripheral character with a little bit of information doled out in the other stories. I think Kitty says that she'd, she had actually had a chance to go to high school before she was recruited where Kitty, Tam and Johnny have not. She's a little bit older, but doesn't look it, that sort of thing. I gave her some more adult characteristics too, to show that she gets some leniency from Miss Jennifer because of the past history that they share. And I built on that in this story too, building her up to set up things to show how powerful she could be. Having her be able to pull in the elephant stuff, the elephant fear and the elephant rage, and build a story around that was a lot of fun too. 
I'm not again. I'm not a big action sequence guy, and as you can tell if you listen to this story, the action sequence is very muted. But it seems to be like it's effective in that the main character reacts to this situation in a way that is relatively unexpected but still successful. I get to play on her fears a little bit, show some of the worry that she has, and then in subsequent stories, I've taken this event and carried it in to TK's tale as it continues in the other stories here in the Union Dues and Team Shikaragaki universe. We'll talk about this a little bit more at the end, once you've listened to it. But I'm going to drop it in. Um, this was produced beautifully by the gang over at Clone Pod. Again, miss them. Wish them, uh, wish they would come back and pick up again. It's a lovely read. I'm going to preserve all of their stuff, as I always, as I have for the like, other stories. And this is the last one that they did, so this is the last one that I can post. And, uh, alright, I'll catch up with you in about 34 minutes or something like that. Anne has appeared on both Sci-Fi Dig and The Electric Word. When not writing, Mr. Dorega loves practicing the Korean martial art Hapkido and battling Lonzilla. Sit back, relax, and get ready for a great story. It's story time. I'm on my second martini when I feel Miss Jennifer enter the Jumpin' Catfish Lounge home of the Buck 50 Draft. The bar is attached to a seedy little candle-pin bowling alley wedged between an abandoned church, Baptist, I think, and a dirt parking lot stuffed with pickup trucks. The walls are papered with posters for low-rent country cover bands, amateur wrestling, and the world-famous Solomon Brothers Traveling Circus. A wagon-wheel chandelier throws enough light that I can't even blend into the shadows, so she's sure to see me. I've got an earworm and the gin is dulling it some, but not chasing it away. This isn't a regular earworm, you know, like the first two bars of a TV theme song that perpetually cycle through your head like some supernatural torture. No, this is a stray thought. Get away, it says. Get away or kill them all. The voice doesn't come through in words, obviously, but like raw emotion, or sometimes like colors or shapes or pictures. The union trains us to verbalize these things so they can be better understood. Detecting a strong thought is not so unusual for mind readers. We're trained to ignore them because the protection of privacy clause in the charter prohibits us from actively tuning into the thoughts of normals. The Union's strongest mind readers put psychic locks in our brains just after recruitment to effectively shut off our normal thought broadcast antennas too. So, either I've become more attuned, or the preventative measures the Union put in place are beginning to break down. I can't tell Miss Jennifer either. She's still in tight with the Union Brass, and, although she's promised to stick by us in every situation, if it looks like I'm having control problems, it could mean yet another stint at Salt Lake City to train. Booze helps. Drugs do, too. Like, they give my mind something else to worry about, instead of fidgeting its tuner to the source of some stray worry out among the masses. I try to look inconspicuous, but at just shy of five foot one, gleaming blonde hair and a teenage body in its prime dressed in tight jeans and a yellow pullover sweatshirt, I stand out in this bar like a Barbie doll in a toy box full of broken G.I. Joes. Miss Jennifer hasn't noticed me yet because the men who've fallen over themselves to buy me drinks make a big fleshy wall, cutting me off from the most of the rest of the lounge. My solitude won't last. I crush out my cigarette and finish the drink when her hand comes to rest on my shoulder. Let's go, she says. I don't want to go. 
I shove her hand away, and because I am broadcasting just a little, in effect of the gin, my escorts unconsciously close ranks. Bartender, another, and one for my friend, on the house. The bartender gapes for a second until the suggestion seeps into his cement block-like head, and he starts mixing. I'm going to count to three. I bury my eyes in hers for just a second. You aren't counting shit. The bartender places two square napkins, then two enormous martinis in front of me. On the house, he says. I hand one through my man shield to Miss Jennifer. Let's sit somewhere a little less crowded and talk. She follows me silently to the rear of the lounge. My hold on the three escorts fades once I am more than a few yards away. A little subtle fiddling and they forget I was even there. I sit and Miss Jennifer sits opposite me. I could let her speak, and I can feel her switching mental gears trying to throw off my limited control, but I haven't drunk enough to get careless yet. You're going to finish your drink and get up from the table. You're going to walk back to the bus and go to sleep. Miss Jennifer's eyes are slightly glazed behind her little wire-framed glasses, but I know she's trying to avoid the suggestion. Super strategists are trained to fight us off. They don't usually win, but they make us work hard to establish control. She begins sipping the chilled gin. I haven't been in a bar in at least two years, and even then it was no dive honky-tonk. No, my playground was West Hollywood. Are you done? Damn. I let my concentration get away for just a second and she slipped out. Almost. The voice is there again, too. It says, Won't hurt me again. I won't let them. Miss Jennifer finishes the martini in two long gulps, then pushes the glass to the side. I know it's been harder for you than the others. She's right, of course. Recruited out of the good life as first trophy daughter of screen queen Daphne Sanders, just as I was getting a little career of my own started. Commercials, mostly, but the big stuff was coming. All I had to do was think about it the right way in front of the right casting director, but Mom sold me out to the union. You're older than Tam and Johnny and Kitty, I know that, and I know leadership is hard. Her answer is a pre-programmed response, and it only takes a couple of targeted thoughts to bring the words out of her mouth. Union approved, script 214, dealing with cases of diminished morale. But Miss Jennifer is no fool and manages to shake off the script midway. You think you're so smart, TK. I shrug and finish the drink. Have another. Miss Jennifer glares at me. Every muscle in her body wants to go to the bar and get another drink, but she manages to white-knuckle through the suggestion and stay seated. I let up and Miss Jennifer calms down quickly. A little rebellion I understand, but sneaking away from the bus is a seriously stupid move. What if someone recognizes you? I interrupt. No one knows me. You don't even know me. What if someone, she glances at the unsavory patrons of Jumpin' Catfish, goes physical? You think you're strong enough for that? And if I don't know where you are, I can't back you up. Oh, please. I can make this whole place do the macarena until they pee their pants, then immediately make them forget I was here. It sets a bad example. Yeah, I am sure our target demographic of 7- to 13-year-olds is prowling around among the beer taps waiting to see one of their heroes make a mistake. I needed to get away for a couple of hours. You found me? Big deal. Not for them, for the rest of the team. You're the second in command. If something happens to me or I get called away on union business, then you have to take the reins and run the show. But I can't be comfortable with that if I don't trust you or if the union thinks you're unreliable. So, don't report it. God knows you already let enough slide with the others. You're different than Kitty and Tam and Johnny because you were in the regular union before I chose you for Team Shikaragaki.
She pauses and stares at me for a full minute before continuing. You know what they do when you break protocol, spoon bender. I grimace at the sound of my old name and the immediate unpleasant memories it brings back. Seems to have worked out in your favor. She glares at me again. I shouldn't have said that. It's just that I've been cooped up in the bus for a year with you guys and I needed a break. Let's go back. I need to sleep off this gin before I start to slur my words. Tam and I are leaving tomorrow. A jet is touching down just outside town. Tam's parents have managed to win an appeal on the Supreme Court decision about his union membership. You want me to go? I could influence them to give the union whatever it wants, just like when I was a kid. Mom had fallen out of favor with the studios due to her love of cocaine and making a public idiot of herself. A stint in rehab didn't solve her career problems, and after fling with a second-rate leading man in direct-to-video karate pictures, I came along. I manifested at nine. By my 11th birthday, I'd resurrected Mom's career by influencing the hiring decisions at the casting calls to which she dragged me. The tribunal thinks this is best channeled through normal channels. We'll have someone in attendance who can sway the judges if the actual arguments and precedents don't. No, I need you to take Kitty and Johnny and yourself to Los Angeles. We've canceled the next two weeks' worth of Team Shikaragaki appearances because no one is sure how long the hearing will last. Shouldn't be a problem. We've all had driver training, so we can take turns. Miss Jennifer shakes her head. Just you behind the wheel. Drive by night. Stay put during the day. Truck stops are pretty anonymous or we wouldn't use them, so find a quiet one before sunup. No detours. When you get back to L.A., check in with the pyramid there and wait for me. Miss Jennifer notices my scowl. Problem? I recover immediately. No problem. Long drive tomorrow, then. I better get back to the bus. We walk back after I spend the last of my energy wiping the memories of us from everyone in the bar. My head throbs like a hyperactive mining crew is working the left side of my skull. The voice is still there, too, but now it's only a whisper. The next afternoon, we're beside a wide stretch of scrub grassland as the Black Union jump jet roars down to a stop only a hundred feet off the road. Miss Jennifer and Tam wave as they jump the little ring of flaming grass stretching out from where the plane waits. Megaton swings the door open and ushers them both inside. He glances at us, but since I haven't worn the spoonbender tights in almost a year and a half, he doesn't recognize me. Miss Jennifer gives the first team leader from Chicago a big hug before the door closes and the jet lifts off. Kitty and Johnny and me watch them shoot up into the deepening blue sky. I climb behind the wheel and adjust the seat forward just a bit so I can better reach the pedals. We hit the road. Kitty and Johnny are smiling like school kids on a snow day as we speed onto the West Highway. I'm worried about Tam, but Miss Jennifer will take good care of him. I glance back. Kitty watches Mighty Joe Young. Johnny works on a blog entry. I click the radio on, but the stations are all either fire and brimstone preachers or contemporary country music. I settle on Brother Alfred San Cristo and his revelations on revelations, figuring it should be good for a laugh or two. I don't understand the whole end-of-the-world-as-we-know-it aspect of religion. Why would you want to bother worrying about how everyone's going to die? Seems rather pointless in the grand scheme of things, especially if, as described by Brother Alfred, that we can't do anything to prevent it. Johnny drops into the passenger seat. We're going to drive all night? Yeah, we're vampires now. His eyes flash white when he hears Brother Alfred. Turn this crap off. Hey, I drive. I choose the accompaniment. Johnny puts a finger on the radio dial, and before I can slap it away, he blasts it to static. There, problem solved. Ass. 
Now I have to drive all night without anything to take my mind off how boring this is. I'll keep you company. Why'd you do it? Jesus, it's just a radio show. I have my reasons, TK, trust me. Then you better come up with something to talk about so we don't all die in a fiery bus accident. He laughs but doesn't say anything else. We're four miles outside Lubbock when I hear the voice again. Kill them all, it says. The voice is the same as I heard when we pulled into town. A gravelly whisper. The thoughts are delivered deliberately as if the thinker is repeating them like a mantra. I try and shake it off, but it won't go. The sound of a whip, the burn of a lash across my back, ankles chained, lots of garbled and incomprehensible swears. You okay? Johnny reaches for the wheel as I've almost rubbed our bus into the guardrail. A cold sweat breaks across the back of my neck as I skid the bus to a stop. My mouth can't make sense of the feelings and distorted images that come with the voice. You want me to call Miss Jennifer? I'm just tired, I mumble. We'll pull in early. I shove a map into Johnny's lap and tell him to find a safe place to stop for the night. I squint into the darkness and try to think about something, anything else. The voice fades away after about an hour. We slip quietly into a truck stop off the highway, and I park the bus in the back corner. Fluorescent light from the truck stop diner washes out into the mostly empty parking lot, but I don't see any silhouettes in the windows. I'm going to get some aspirin. I slip out while the others climb into their bunks and walk across the parking lot. Diesel engines snore in the darkness. Occasionally, a flicker of light from a truck cab winks on or off, but the place is pretty much deserted otherwise. I pull the heavy glass door open. Another poster for the world-famous Solomon Brothers Traveling Circus obscures the inside of the diner. The poster also announces a parade tomorrow as the circus comes into town. I slip inside and cut left into the little convenience store attached to the diner. I pick up an Ultra Mango Super Blast sports drink and a bottle of extra-strength aspirin. The clerk, an old man sporting a gray goatee and glass eye, asks for five bucks and change. I hand him a scrap of white paper. Change for twenty? He dutifully counts out the change and hands it back to me, then promises to erase the security camera tape of me making my purchase. I'm halfway to the bus when the voice comes on stronger than ever. It says, As soon as they let me out, I strike. A feeling of confinement settles on me, like I'm being forced into a half-sized phone booth, then dropped into a pit. I try to shrug the feeling off. I mean, I know I am standing in the middle of a parking lot, but it won't let go. I clap my hands over my ears and stagger for the bus. The lights are out, Kitty and Johnny sleeping in the back. The oppression overwhelms. I drop to one knee and fight for breath. The sun just creeps over the eastern tree lines as I collapse. The world-famous Solomon Brothers Traveling Circus winds its way down the road from the outskirts of town, along the gentle curve of the little two-lane road and through the first of two intersections in the little town. All 2,000 or so residents line the sidewalk as the first circus truck rolls along the thoroughfare. Johnny and Kitty are right at the curb while I stay back a bit. I haven't heard the voice yet today. Either that or the triple-sized coffee and handful of aspirin I had for breakfast have deadened my antennae enough to keep it out. The first two trucks pass. Roustabouts sit atop the trailers and throw candy down to the crowd. A horde of clowns follows the trucks and hands out discount passes to the show. Acrobats and jugglers come next, then a flatbed truck with six caged lions, two caged tigers, and two bears. 
The animals barely notice the people only two or three feet from their cage. They are well-trained or drugged, probably drugged. Another truck comes next with carnival rides on it, another advertising El Supremo and his El Magnifico Wrestling Challenge. El Supremo, wearing his trademark black and orange flame mask, is driving the truck and waving out with one huge arm. A dozen more trucks roll by carrying the last of the carnival midway that will set up just outside the circus. Finally, four Indian elephants walk in formation, a big male at the front, led by a pair of spindly handlers. The beasts are chained at the foot to one another. The big male has a cloth sign draped over his shoulders that advertises, Trunko and his dancing harem. There are silhouettes of four dancing elephants strung just below the words. More roustabouts follow them with shovels and wheelbarrows to catch whatever Trunko and his dancing harem leave behind. Finally, a pair of intercity cruisers, probably the only ones assigned to this whole county, creep along behind. The whole parade takes 25 minutes to wind through the circus grounds in the big grassy lot just behind the town hall. People follow the parade away, but Johnny and Kitty slip back towards me. They each hold a discount ticket and smile. We can't leave until nightfall anyway, so what's an extra couple of hours? We're back at the truck stop, and neither Kitty nor Johnny wants to sleep. I don't blame them, but it's going to be hell come four or five in the morning when I am begging them to stay awake so I can stay awake. Johnny settles in to update Tam's blog. We have to keep our internet personas visible, and we've all agreed to take turns in keeping Tam's entries up to date. It's not too hard. The union sends us a couple of bullet lists of personal events to work from that falls in line with the current storyline in the comic. Right now, Tam and me are supposed to be having a passionate yet chaste secret affair while Johnny pines for Miss Jennifer and Kitty rebounds from a bad date with some minor character from a rival school. And if we have to fight space aliens or killer robots halfway through some romantic evening of oh-so-wholesome ice cream sundaes, then so much the better. The target demographic is eating it up. Our books still outsell the top six traditional union titles combined. No doubt Miss Jennifer is reinforcing that point with the tribunal in preparation for Tam's hearing. I key Miss Jennifer's channel. I shouldn't in case she's in the middle of something important, but I promised I'd give daily updates. TK, she says. Just want to update our progress. No time, she says. Things are going poorly. I'll call tonight while you're on the road. How's Tam? Tonight. Out. The radio goes dead. I slide into the living room area and flick on the satellite TV, but we don't get any court channels. I settle on the news and hope they will mention the union. Kitty heard the call and her face shows all the worry in the world. Don't get all weird on me, I say. Well, Miss Jennifer didn't sound good, and what about Tam? I know as much as you do. We watch the news through the hour, but there isn't anything about the hearing. There are two news stories that pique my curiosity. The first announces a Senate subcommittee on union affairs is pushing for amendments to the charter and possible subpoenas for as-yet unnamed union members. The story lasts all of 20 minutes. The other one lands on me as if the broadcast satellite just fell from space and bounced off my head. Award-winning actress Daphne Sanders found dead of apparent drug overdose. I cough. Oh, no! Kitty, stunned, rubs my back. It's crazy, huh? I liked her too, TK. Did you ever see her old movies? Tam has one of the creepy old horror ones. She paused through his DVDs until recovering the slipcase for scream bloody horror and hands it to me. 
I can't shake the tremor in my hands as I study the case. Scream Bloody Horror, the last film she made before I was born. A cheap little B picture for the drive-in market. Shot in Spain, where she met my dad. We didn't even have a poster of this one in the house when I was a kid. Just holding the DVD brings the tears and I can't get them under control. Did you know her or something? I stare at her for a minute and fight the urge to just mentally dump my entire life into her head and let her sort it out. I calm down enough to answer. She was my mom. My voice croaks like a sick frog. Oh, man. Oh, Jesus. Oh, man. I'm so sorry, TK. I, I, I didn't know. No one did. I drop the DVD to the carpet and abandon all pretense of controlling myself. I didn't cry when she used my Christmas money for drugs, nor when she was too drunk to give me to kindergarten graduation. I never cried. I wasn't allowed. I was supposed to be the strong and smart one, the one who told directors to hire her and male leads to be seduced by her. I was the one who made sure she was paid well for her crappy acting. Johnny, stirred no doubt by my caterwauling, hurries into the cabin. What's wrong? Kitty fills him in while I struggle to bring my sobs to an end. Jeez, he says, and sits beside me on the couch. Jenny begins to cry. Johnny does, too. I don't realize that I'm literally sharing my grief with them until Johnny grabs my arm and offers a tiny shock, enough to bring me back to my senses. Kitty almost falls over once I retract my will. I'm sorry, I whisper. I'm calling Miss Jennifer, Johnny says. Don't. No. I'm cool. I force a short-lived smile. She's dealing with plenty right now. Give me a few minutes to get my wits, okay? I stumble outside onto the hot pavement and lean on the bus. The circus looms ahead. We walk with a few hundred others into the main entrance and present our discount tickets. I don't bother messing with the guards and just pay the 15 bucks for the three of us to get in. The main show doesn't start for an hour and that gives us plenty of time to fool around in the midway. The shock of Mom's death is slowly wearing off, and I'm thankful for the circus to provide a little distraction. I hand Kitty and Johnny 20 bucks each and remind them that we have to be in our seats before the show starts or they won't let us into the tent. They don't seem inclined to let me just wander and have made a mission out of cheering me up. They have me throwing baseballs at bottles before I can protest, then getting temporary tattoos. Not surprisingly, the vendor has a whole line of union tattoos, but almost all of them are characters that have been discontinued or evolved into something different over the last year or two. I settle on a Jenny Chrome tattoo and wait as it's stuck onto my upper arm. Kitty gets an old Jim Jaguar. We check out the wrestling ring, too, and we're all giggling a little. El Supremo goes into his shtick about challenging everyone at the circus. Man, I wish Tam was with us, Johnny says. It'd be hell finding another gorilla costume, Kitty answers. I get a slab of fried dough and some popcorn before we all head into the big red and white striped tent. The place is packed. The roustabouts really know their stuff, and if not for the few little blades of green grass poking up through the sawdust floor, you'd think the circus was a permanent feature of this town. The acrobats come out first, and while I'd like nothing more than to watch them do their act, Kitty won't leave me alone. She must have loved you, she whispers. I shrug. Come on, it's not like she can answer for herself now. Look, Kitty, she dropped the dime on me to the union. I guess she thought I wouldn't help her get work or that I use my abilities to get work for myself. I'd done a dozen or so commercials right before the union came to visit. Maybe she figured I was going to leave her out as my success grew. I wish she'd have just talked to me about it, but Mom wasn't much of a talker. 
So here I am, and she's dead, and that's the end. Watch the clowns or the lions or some goddamn thing, but leave me alone and let me enjoy the circus. I could suggest that she not say another word to me for at least as long as the show, but we all promised that we'd never use our abilities to mess with each other. She's quiet until the high wire act is midway through. Look at how hard they have to try just to do something simple like walk ten yards up there. She suppresses a giggle. It's easy to forget we're special, Johnny says, and his voice carries an air of disappointment. The voice returns suddenly, as if the speaker is right inside my skull, but I can't decipher any words from the cloud of rage that hides them. I slap my hands over my ears and feel a rush of adrenaline. The voice has triggered my fight-or-flight reflex. I grab Kitty's arm so hard I break my fingernails. Get me out of here! She slaps her hand around my right wrist. Let go! I drag her up from the seat and we start threading through the bleachers. The whole town and probably half of the surrounding towns crowd into the stands around the center ring. I don't even care about bumping them as we move slowly towards the steps leading down into the exit. What the hell is wrong with you? Kitty tugs back against my forward motion. I want to see the elephants. Just get me outside. The rage is blinding, like I could burn the whole tent down and kill anyone trying to run from the flames, like I could twist the head off each of the clowns with my bare hands. I have to get away before I start amplifying and projecting the rage onto the normals. Trunko and his famous dancing harem, led by their skinny handlers, enter through the opposite side of the tent. There they are! Come on, TK! I hit the steps and release Kitty's arm before I plunge down and crash headlong into the sawdust. The audience in the surrounding bleachers bursts into laughter as if I am part of the show. I scramble up and sprint for the tent's exit flap. The air outside is only a little cooler than inside, but it doesn't help clear my head. Two security guards catch me as I tumble out. The men help me to the admissions booth. I'm panting and try to say, Panic attack! The words come out garbled. I heave over and vomit popcorn and fried dough. It's Chicago all over again, where in the midst of a factory fire, I froze and couldn't guide the team through the flames to a pair of trapped firefighters. That mistake cost two normal lives, and me, the spot, is filling on Chicago's first team. I shake and twitch there as one guard runs off for the police and the other peppers me with questions about how much I've had to drink. Laughter floats out of the tent, and then a voice, amplified, asking everyone to remain calm. Screams follow. The whole tent seems to rumble before the first mass of people erupts through the exit flap. The rage is worse than ever now, and I can't keep it in check much longer. I climb to my feet, try to shake off the worst, and find a little clarity. The security guard draws a pistol and I hear a bit of the radio chatter. Trunko's gone wild. I push back into the tent. Hundreds of people still scramble around the bleachers trying to find a safe way out. The ringmaster runs past me. The clowns, too. The acrobats cling to the high-wire platform. Trunko is chasing the female trainer around the center ring. The harem tries to shield her from the rampaging bull elephant, but he's bigger and stronger than they are. The harem shoves against Trunko and bumps him away from the woman trainer, scrambling back and forth behind them. The male trainer is squashed flat beside a reinforced metal stool. I don't see Kitty or Johnny within the chaos. High-pitched trumpeting drowns out the screams of the fleeing audience. Trunko rears up and slams his feet on the head of one of the harem. She bucks forward and knocks the big male sideways. He turns from the trainer and charges at the bleachers. Kitty scrambles into the ring, dodges the harem, and drags the trainer out of harm's way. I try and get a handle on the rage, but I'm acting like an amplifier, feeding it back to the big male elephant, making him crazier. 
training, training, training. The union teaches us to lock these errant emotions away, to store them like memories until time fades them out. I see the edges of the rage, like the flickering surface of a thunderhead. I squeeze it down as hard and fast as I can. My brain feels like it's going to shoot out through my eye sockets. I want to curl up in the sawdust and just hold the rage there, but Trunko starts ripping apart the stands. Kitty leaps up to the high wire and sprints across to the terrified acrobats. Johnny charges down the bleachers. He shoves up the sleeves of his sweatshirt. Lightning slickers down his forearms. Trunko rears again. His feet thunder to the ground. Johnny jumps the last two steps and brings his arms up. Back, he yells and lets his cascade of lightning stretch out from his fingertips. Trunko rears back and bellows. I've squeezed the rage away. My stomach is still knotted and sick and my legs wobble when I walk. The voice, Trunko's voice, radiates confusion and fear now. I catch the security guards and a whole gang of intercity cops as they burst into the tent. They raise pistols and rifles. People still struggle off the bleachers. Trunkle whirls around. He's radiating fear now, and I can tell he's looking for a way out. He slams into the right side pole holding the tent and the acrobat platform about 40 feet off the ground. The wood creaks and groans. I stagger closer. I've never tried to communicate with a non-human before. Usually I can dig out some calming image or memory and use that as an anchor to lull a normal into a state of near bliss. But the elephant's thoughts are like looking at a Chinese restaurant menu stuck on the side of a passing car. I start with the basics. Calm down, Trunko. No one is going to hurt you. Calm down. Trunko stops whirling, lowers his head, and charges right at me. He's only ten feet away when the largest of the harem slams Trunko broadside and brings him to the ground. She stomps on its head and legs while the behemoth thrashes and screams. Even the cops are frozen as the big female elephant drops to her front knees and pounds her skull down onto Trunko's face. The fear and confusion vanish as if some magician has tugged a tablecloth out from beneath a lit candelabra and crystal tea set. I shake my head once and the clarity comes right back. Trunko is dead. The big female stalks back and forth around Trunko's body. The other members of the harem walk close, in circle, and begin inspecting the corpse with their trunks. The big female wails, then sits in the bloody sawdust beside his corpse. The female trainer rushes to her side and gently strokes the elephant's rough gray skin. She's crying. They both are. Kitty scampers across the tightrope and spins the turnbuckle until the rope falls beside the pole where the acrobats huddle. She shimmies down the far pole and vanishes into the crowd. Johnny slips in behind me. I did what I could, he whispers. You did good. Subtle, too. Chances are no one even bothered to pay attention to your light show. We should get back to the bus. He tugs on my sleeve, but I don't go. Instead, I walk closer to the trainer. It's okay, Geisha, she coos. You did good. You did good, and I'm so sorry. I stand and watch them for another minute. Their sorrow radiates as brightly and clearly as the sun. I catch the eye of the female elephant, and the entire history of their life in the circus flashes across the front of my mind. She was Trunko's mother, and knew as soon as he killed the trainer that the humans would take their revenge. She only did what any mother would do. She protected him. Come on, TK, Johnny yells from the tent flap as another half-dozen intercity cops pass. We pulled into the L.A. Pyramid at dusk two days ago. I've spent most of my time away from Kitty and Johnny, letting them play in the training room with the regulars from L.A. 
I slump around the cafeteria or stay in my borrowed room and replay the circus over and over until the pent-up rage dissipates enough that I can be social. I'll need weeks, though, unless I can convince Sarah Bellum, the L.A. Team 1 telepath, to help me speed up the dissipation. I'll ask her tomorrow. Miss Jennifer raps softly on my door, but I don't rush to open it for her. You beat me here, she says. I never was one for speed limits. I walk back to the bunk and sit. The room is three times as large as my space on the bus, but it feels claustrophobic inside the pyramid. Miss Jennifer hasn't followed me in. Come on, she says. I follow her out to the bus and we speed off into L.A. traffic. I start remembering the places from my childhood. Man's Chinese Theater, Hollywood Boulevard, the Capitol Records Building. Where are we going? She swings the bus into Hollywood Forever Cemetery and parks. Two rows up, on the left. You'll see it. I... She digs into her pocket and hands me a hundred dollars. They sell flowers right in the office. The cemetery stretches out like some lost, dead city with classically colonnaded mausoleums, Romanesque statues, manicured gardens, and more white marble than probably anywhere else but the Acropolis. The office sits in the center of a half-scale replica of the Temple of Aphrodite. I dodge the concierge and head right into the florist. Mom likes roses, yellow ones, but I don't have enough money for a decent bouquet and settle on carnations, three dozen of them. Mom's headstone is small, surprisingly, and understated compared to the lavishness of her surroundings. Just her name and dates. How did you know? Miss Jennifer just hugs me. I didn't hate her. I wish I could have told her that just once, that I wasn't mad at her for selling me out to the Union, that I know she wasn't jealous of me and what I can do. I know. I start to sob. She saved me. She saved me from this. I point down at the grave. She knew this was where I was headed and sent me away to protect me. Miss Jennifer holds me tight until we're both crying like babies. We hope you enjoyed the story and come back for more. The story was read by Leslie Ann Moore. Miss Moore is a frequent reader for ClonePod. Not only do we highly recommend listening to her podcast, of her book, Griffin's Daughter. We will be listening to her story, Invisible, next episode. My mother may have been the daughter of a duke, but the only thing these people ever see when they look at me is the mark of my father's elven blood. Nothing else matters to them. I'm a half-breed, a bastard, demon spawn. Well, I'm sick of it. I'm leaving. I'll find you, father, I swear, or I'll die trying. What am I going to do? How can I go on like this? Who is this girl I keep dreaming of? Griffin's Daughter, the first book in a new epic fantasy trilogy written by me, Leslie Ann Moore, winner of the 2008 Ben Franklin Award for Best First Fiction, given by the Independent Book Publishers Association. Come join me as each week I read a new chapter from my debut novel. Visit www.lesliannemore.com to link to the podcast. We did get some reading done, despite our current game obsession. Fantasy and Science Fiction Magazine recently came out with an all-star anniversary issue, which was stellar. We have invited three authors featured in the issue, and so far, Robert Reed and Scott Branfield have said yes. So keep tuned in to our podcast for more excellent stories to come. If you like our podcast, please tell a friend. 
We know we're coming out with good stories. Now, we need to get the word out to increase our listenership. And in honor of the recent holiday, we have one of our favorite songs for your listening pleasure, Regarding Your Brains by Jonathan Colton. ClonePod is under a Creative Commons Attributions Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. You can clone us, you just can't change us or sell us. Hey, you Tom, it's Bob from the office down the hall. It's good to see you, buddy. How have you been? Things have been okay for me, except that I'm a zombie now. I really wish you'd let us in. I speak for all of us when I say I understand why you folks might hesitate to submit to our demand. But here's an FYI, you're all gonna die screaming. All we want to do is eat your brains. We're not unreasonable, I mean no one's gonna eat your eyes. If you open up the door, we'll all come inside and eat your brains. I don't want to nitpick, Tom, but is this really your plan? Spend your whole life locked inside a mall. Maybe that's okay for now, but someday you'll be out of food. You'll have to make the call I'm not surprised to see you haven't thought it through enough You never had the head for all that bigger picture stuff But Tom, that's what I do And I plan on eating you slowly your eyes All we want to do is eat your brains We're at an impasse here Maybe we should compromise You open up the door We'll all come inside and eat your brains I'd like to help you
glad to see you take constructive criticism well. Thank you for your time. I know we're all busy as hell. And we'll put this thing to bed when I bash your head open. I mean, no one's gonna eat your eyes. All we wanna do is eat your brains. We're at an impasse here. Maybe we should compromise. Open up the doors. We'll all come inside and eat your brains. So there was the Sojourner of Tizen Kiro, that great, uh, great production that the Clone Pod gang put together for that. That's the best read of the three that they did. It was really wonderfully done. Beautiful. And I'm glad I'm, I have the opportunity to share the whole production with you. Thinking back about TK as I listen to that story again, because, you know, of course, I, I listen to it before I prepare the front end and back end of these things. It's, I, I think about, you know, I was thinking that for all of the stories that I've written up to now, this is the only one that features a mind reader as the main character. And I think by now I'd written like 13 or 14 of these stories. And I think that's because writing a mind reader character is difficult to do. It's really difficult to write a character who ultimately is going to know the answer from everybody that they speak to, whether it's the answer they want or don't want. So the trick, I think, is making the character someone who the other characters that the audience may have met have implicit trust in. And I think that that's why this story works as well as it does. We know Johnny and Kitty, and ultimately Miss Jennifer and, and later Tam, have enough trust in TK that they don't worry that she will be able to, to peer into them and dig information out. Of course, that gets played out differently in the next story, um, unexpectedly. But I wanted that to be something that TK didn't have to worry about so that I could tell this other story about loss and family and protection and, and how she could change the perception that her mother turned her in to preserve her own career to her mother turned her in because she was afraid that her daughter would follow the same sort of drug-laden path that she had taken. Two very divergent points of view for two different characters and two different events. It's the idea that you could pick and choose sort of your own origin story based on how you feel at the time. I wanted that to come through in this story, and it's really difficult to be able to do that if you're constantly fighting with the idea that none of the characters can trust you because you can read their deepest, darkest thoughts if you want to. It was also nice that I was able to sort of explore some of the parameters that I've set up for the mind readers and never really explored any other stories. Like I have the one who reads Captain Colossal's mind when he gets his head smashed in and loses his imprinting, who's a kind of a terrible person character. I have Morgana, who, who gets taken out of the story before the story even starts in Sending the Clowns. And I kind of keep the rest of them away. I keep uh, Frida Freedom in the mix. And I play her as a character who is incredibly powerful and incredibly dangerous uh, right from the beginning. And it, it takes her effort to earn the trust of... Alex Nova and the other members of the Liberty League. So like I, I played around with this a little bit before, but right now I really wanted to take that trust part out. 
I've told that story already. What do you do when you trust someone who has these abilities and, and can do stuff? What do you do? What are the limits? How do they work? What can they do? How can they imagine like other people's thoughts? Do they have to give them a voice? Do they have to interpret them? What does it sort of sound like? What does it feel like? Describing how the inside of a mind works or the communication between two minds is really complicated. And the best way I think to do it is just to sort of push it aside like I kind of did and be abstract, as abstract as I could. You know, war was Trunko the elephant really saying he was going to kill all his handlers? Or was that TK's frustration with the situation that she was in and she was building that and reflecting that sort of idea back because she had given those feelings that she was that she was pulling in with her sort of mental antenna and interpreting to read that way, or was she adding the interpretation? So there's a couple of different ways you can sort of look at it. It was fun. It was fun to write. It was a fun, complicated sort of story to put together. And TK's a fun character, and all the other characters in the team are a lot of fun too. Uh, and it's nice that I've it's it's nice that I've been able to go in the subsequent stories and expand a little bit on this to take this information that TK has from this encounter and use it sort of down the road some. You'll see, I won't tell some tales out of school, but in Miss Jennifer knows how powerful or thinks she understands how powerful TK is and is telling someone who's lying to her that if she really wanted to, she could have TK go in and take the information out of this person's head. And the way that she describes it is, she uses a metaphor. She says, have you ever seen what a person looks like that's been run over by a tractor trailer truck? There's not much left, but some squished skin and bones. And I don't care about any of that stuff. Neither do the cops that are there. What they're looking for is the ID card. And, and she says, well, well, she's the truck. And I'm the cop looking for the ID card. And it's like this nice metaphor to show that she could really, you know, brain scramble whoever she's talking to. And it's a, it's a hedged bet, of course, that, that Miss Jennifer takes. But it's one that ultimately pays off in that story. So hopefully that will come out as a book soon enough. Putting it together and it's nearly ready. I've had a couple of minor word processor crashes that have slowed my editing down, but I'm almost done. And who knows, maybe I'll produce that one if I can find the right female voice here as a podcast or, or someone else will, will write to me and say, hey, you know, I'd like to buy that story and put it out as a podcast too, in which case maybe we'll do that. At any rate, uh, you know, there you go. This is the Sojourn of Tizen Kiro. Fun story for me to write and hopefully fun one for you to listen to. Uh, with that said, you know, please don't mess around with this. It's protected under Creative Commons, no attribution license. I realize I'm sort of violating that with what I'm doing with the Clone Punch story, but I'm dropping the whole thing in and I'm not editing it in any way. Uh, please don't fold, spindle, dry, or mangle this podcast. Don't use it to make money unless you're going to give money to me. You know, be ethical, be nice, be good, be writing. Uh, you can reach me, should for some reason you find you need to, at jrdorigo at gmail.com. You can also find me on Instagram, although I almost never post anything there, at Jeff McLargehuge. And you can find me on Facebook as Jeffrey Dorigo. So uh, check in if you like. Uh, I'll probably talk to you if you talk to me. And I'll answer questions if you ask them. And you can also find me co-hosting the Comedy History Podcast Twibbly, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year, dropping every Monday. Uh, it's a podcast I do with my high school friend, Bill. Check it out. Until next time, which I'll probably do later this weekend or something and talk about the Venture Brothers. Um, peace and chicken grease, my friends. Have a great week. Bye.